Well, good morning. Hey, okay, you guys are a little bit more awake than the nine o'clock. Good morning. There we go. My name is Todd Berkey. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm not the normal person here, but uh, Matt asked me if I would be willing to come and, and share this morning with y'all, and I said, of course. And I said, is there a specific passage that you would like me to, to go over? And he said, whatever you want. We're in the middle of the Revelation series, whatever you want. And so just jokingly, I said, well, how about Revelation 20, knowing that that's next week and thinking it might get a rise out of Matt, but Matt's just like, mm, that's, that's fine. You know, it just it kind of failed on that, but uh, it really is a joy and an honor to be here with y'all. Um, I work at Grace here, I'm one of our pastors. I specifically work with our young adult ministry, which is single grad students and young professionals. Uh, and so if you are one of those in the room right now and you're wondering, is there anybody like me in this community who wants to follow Jesus? Yes, Thursday night, come join us. If you know somebody who, who's in that demographic, would love to get connected with other people who would, are just trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus well, have them come on out. We just would love to have time to connect with them. It's my joy to be with you here this morning. We're not going to be in Revelation. We're going to be in 1 Samuel, mainly 18, but we're going to kind of be all over um, the book of 1 Samuel. As you are turning or clicking there, I hope your Thanksgiving was great. Uh, my family and I, we got to spend it in a ranch or on a ranch. No, actually a ranch house, I guess, because of the weather. There were 24 of us in one house. And let me just tell you, for an introvert, that's life-giving. Uh, yeah, so I've, I've recovered. Uh, we got back yesterday, and it really was a great time. You know, when you get together, people you haven't seen for a while, you get to share stories. And, and the moment we walked in the door, there was this buzz, though, like this just buzz in the house, like this excitement, because the family that was hosting, uh, this, is, this is just my life, uh, they got a new toilet seat. I know, it seems like, like what's so great about this? But it was heated. It was a heated bidet toilet seat, and so that, that would literally would come in, and people were like, hey, did you, have, you tried, have you tried this? And, and I'm like, well, no, I'm, I was never even aware that there's such a thing. Like, I'd just been living my life, like, I don't know, in ignorance. So as the buzz continues, I thought, well, I should probably, it'd be rude not to try it. And uh, let me just say, we're not going to get graphic with anything. That warm seat was kind of nice. So, uh, but I, I sat there and I, I was like, this was a neat experience, something I was totally unaware of, but what do I do with that? What do I do? This is something that I've never heard of, I've, I've never experienced. Now that I have, how do I respond? And it doesn't happen just over, over things. As our weekend continued, you know, you share with your relatives. This is what's been going on in our life over the last year. Here are some of the things our kids are involved with, and we just... We just exchanged stories, and we've had a pretty good year. But can you imagine if somebody said, oh, yeah, that, that, thanks for the update there. Yeah, yeah your, your kids did great. Um, you know, our little Johnny, he, he's just one state, and um, he, he also started a, a, a ministry reaching out uh, to folks who don't have enough food, and he, he works that soup kitchen every day of the week. He's got straight A's. And uh, did I mention that he's just wrapped up his, his last uh, a section on learning biblical Greek, and he's memorized the Gospel of Luke in three different languages. And like, if somebody's child was like that, that's like a moment of awareness. I would call it a MOA, a moment of awareness of going, what? Like, what do you do with those things? Do you compare or do you celebrate? When we have these MOA moments where we become aware that there's either a thing or an experience that others have that you don't, 
How do you respond? How do I respond? A MOA hits, and do we compare or do we celebrate? Now, the, we should have great experience with responding because they're not new. These moments of awareness, the MOAs aren't, aren't anything new. Our family actually talked about this. When you were younger, what was the thing that other people had that you thought, if we just had that, then we've made it? Like, what was that thing? And uh, what I learned is that my mom was right, that apparently I viewed the world in a little different way. Because for me, here were a few of the things that you made it as a family big time if you had these things. So the first one's not too bad, side-by-side refrigerator. That was just, I remember the first time I went to a family's house and they had side-by-side refrigerator. I'm like, what? That's a thing? Oh, you've made it if you have a side-by-side fridge. It gets worse. A push broom, have you seen those? You know, not the ones that you do this, but like the the ones you push. I thought they were only for schools. And so when a neighbor in Richland, Michigan came out and he was doing this in his garage, he was pushing with a push broom. My eyes were like, that's incredible. You can have that at home. You've made it if you got a push broom. Malto meal? I mean, my family, we had oatmeal and cream of wheat, but malto meal, what is this? And so all throughout my childhood, I have these really low bars of like making it in life, apparently. Uh, but we have these moments of awareness. And do we compare or do we celebrate? And even as a child, I was able to realize this, that when I compare, it kills all contentment. When I compare, it robs me of the enjoyment of what I have. And the reality is that hasn't changed over the years. As I think about today and the world we live in, our MOAs, our moments of awareness, they've increased dramatically, haven't they, because of this thing. Uh, Different studies show basically we unlock our smartphones 80 times a day. 80 times. So if you sleep for eight hours, it means you're awake for what? That's 16, and you do it 80 times. That's once every 12 minutes that we, something happens that causes us to do this and we engage with our mobile phones. And we spend about four hours on average, four hours engaged on our mobile devices. The majority of that time is spent on social media and apps that share videos and photos. And we are bombarded constantly with these moments of awareness. I never knew. Look at where they went for Thanksgiving. Wow, look at their turkey. Wow, look at whatever it is. We have these moments of awareness. What do we do with them? And so we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to, we're going to be a little biblical and practical as we look at King Saul's life and how he responded to Amoah. And what we're going to see is that this gifted leader ended up living a very miserable life because of comparison. So our, our plan for this morning, I, I like to have kind of, this is just where we're going, so we're all on the same page. We're going to talk about uh, comparison. What does it actually reveal? Well, comparison probably isn't the real issue. It reveals the real issue. So we're going to talk about that, looking at Saul's life, and then we're going to look at what's the impact of living a life that's filled with comparison, and then is there any pathway of freedom? If it really, if comparison kills contentment, is there a way as we enter into the season where we can walk victoriously? And so that's our plan for, for, the, for the morning, and so we're get, diving into 1 Samuel, and I'm going to recognize our best bet for us is to say, let me give you some background, because in this room, I know that we have a variety of, of um, knowledge of what goes on within God's Word. And there's a huge spectrum. There's not a wrong place to be on that. 
And so I want to make sure we're on the same page. Now, what's happened? God has actually created a country for himself in the Old Testament named Israel. And that country, we, we might have been aware of, those people, they were enslaved in Egypt for, for many years. And God comes through and miraculously liberates them. He brings them out, plagues and Red Sea parting, and out they come. And he brings them into the very land that he wanted them in. And as they've come in there, what do they do is they begin to be aware of the countries around them, and they say, we want to be like them. Everybody else around us, they have a king. We don't. We just have you, God. So God, give us a king so we can be like everybody else. They were comparing, and they said, give us a king. And this is where King Saul comes in. He's their first king in Israel. So that's where we are, and I just want us to know just a little bit about King Saul, because he covers from 1 Samuel chapter 9 through 31, so that's, what, 22 chapters. Let me just bear with me as we get some background. Get to know this guy before we tear him apart at one moment of his life. Um, Kish, that's his dad, had a son whose name was Saul, a young and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome man than he among the sons of Israel from his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. We'll read that in 1 Samuel 9, 2. Already, uh, as a vertically challenged individual, I'm feeling threatened by the guy. Uh, but we do learn that he was young. He actually started to rule as king when he was 30. He's good looking and he's tall. But more than this, if we were to read the next verse, we see this. The donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, had wandered off. So Kish said to his son Saul, Now take with you one of the servants and arise, go search for the donkeys. Why are we reading that? Uh, what does it have to do with anything? We just get to know more of who Saul is here. We get to know one thing, that he's not poor. He's got a servant or servants that are there. He probably has the heated toilet seat, his family does, and malt meal. And so he comes from a, at least a not poor family. We also see that he's willing to serve. His dad comes and says, go track down the donkeys. This isn't a thing of, of great honor. It's not some great mission. It's really kind of a smaller thing. Servants could go do that, but he's willing to go ahead and embrace that. He's willing to go ahead and say, I'll go. And so we're, we're learning more that he has the servant-heartedness within him. And then as they're away, if we were to read on, as they are away looking for the donkeys, they can't find him. And all of a sudden, Saul goes, man, my dad's going to start worrying about me. We, we need to go home. And so he's aware of others. He's inc incredibly compassionate. That's a pretty cool trait to have. And as they get ready to turn, his servant says, actually, before we go, there's a seer. There's a man of God who he might be able to help us find the donkeys. We, we should go and, and see him, not just go home. Let's not give things up. And so Saul says, okay, so he's teachable. And so what we see as we get to know Saul is he's an attractive, servant-hearted, compassionate, teachable, and tall guy. And when they go see the seer, something incredible happens because the seer, his name is Samuel, God speaks to him and says, this is the first king of Israel. And so they have a meeting, a one-on-one -on -one meeting, and he anoints him and says, you are the first king of Israel. And so that you'll know that what I'm saying is true, here are these four incredible signs that are going to unfold as you head back. The donkeys, they are okay. You're going to bump into these people, and this is going to happen. And so he walks through, and he sees these things confirmed, like, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. This is true. And so you have, again, an attractive servant heart, a compassionate, teachable, tall guy in possession of an incredible promise from God. 
So that's who Saul is. Now we're going to dive into his moa, his moment of awareness where things aren't exactly equal and how he responds. I just wanted you to know he's not some brutish guy that's starting off. This is a different guy. So let's dive in here. What what does it reveal? In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 through 9, let me go ahead and just read. Now it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistines that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul. They wanted to meet him with tambourines, with joy, and with other musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. I want to pause there for just a moment. I don't want us to miss this. First off, Saul had a walk-up song. Like, every place he went, they're singing this song, which is pretty cool. Like, who wouldn't like to have, I mean, that's making it. That's next level making it. Wherever he walked into all the cities, this walk-up song was played and sung. And it was known outside of Israel. It's referenced three times in 1 Samuel where it's other kings who are saying, whoa, we know who Saul is and we know who David is because of this song. And the other thing that's important to know is they were all moving to go meet King Saul. As as they're coming out, they're wanting to have a moment with King Saul. They're looking to actually honor him. They're saying, Saul, he's strong. He's killed thousands. And Saul, he's he's wise because he has strong people who are willing to follow him who have killed ten thousands. They're not looking to take a dig at him. They're looking to honor him at all the towns that he went but what's his response, this moment of awareness of like, wow, I've only killed thousands and then he's killed 10,000? And what are people really saying? How does this moment of awareness, how does he respond? Verse 8, then Saul became very angry for this lyric displeased him. And he said, they have given David credit for 10,000, but to me they have given credit for only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David with suspicion from that day forward. Again, here's his moa, moment of awareness, and how does the king, the one they all want to go see, the one they all want to go meet, how does he respond with this honor that they've given? He turns it into an opportunity to compare. He uses it as an opportunity to make himself feel less than. Now, this response to compare and not celebrate, it's going to reveal his heart. And it's going to reveal, and we're going to walk through this, it's going to reveal that he's prideful and he's insecure. And how do we know this? One is just logic. Man, the the prideful and insecure people that you have probably bumped into, I've bumped into, maybe I have been, and maybe you have been too, but we're constantly looking to establish our own names. We want to declare our value, our worth, and identity by accolades and achievements, by wealth. And so we're constantly chasing the things that the world says has value. And we're running after, oh, this is what I need. And the, the world says, it's not a push broom. You need Malto meal. And so and then we start running after Malto meal. Like, it's not Malto meal. It's side-by-side fridge. And then we run up here. So there's insecurity that happens there. The second thing that we know this reveals that comparison in Saul is revealing a prideful and insecure person is that There's hints of it all throughout his life that we're going to look at. Now, before we do that, I want to make sure we're on the same page. When I use the word pride, what do I mean? Is it just some arrogant, obnoxious person? Maybe, but that's not what I mean. And so um, 
here's what I mean when I use the word pride or humility this morning. Pride is this. It's rejecting God's view of himself, the world, and us. That's what I mean by pride. It's, it's coming through. It's just re- rejecting God's view of himself, the world, and us. Essentially, it's saying, I know best. I mean, I may consider what God says. I may think about what he has said about how I should respond to things. I may think about it, but ultimately, my thoughts, my wants, my urges, my timeline, my plan, that is what matters the most. And you see it back in Genesis, the original sin, the fall, how everything got broken, right? Adam and Eve, they had one directive from the Lord just not to eat of this one fruit. And they said, you know... We're hanging out with some shady characters, and who are you? I mean, that's just a suggestion, right? We can be like you, knowing good and evil on our own. So we've considered what you've said. We just don't agree with it. We reject it. We're embracing our own thing. We're going to go our own way. And if you need a really good working definition for what the Bible calls sin, it is going your own way. So when I use pride, that's what we're talking about, rejecting God's view of himself the world and us. It means you can be a really nice person, a really happy person, a really generous person, and still be a real prideful person. You can be very likable and still be very prideful because we reject what God has said about himself, the world we live in, and ourselves. Now, the, the humble person, you know, they, they embrace God's view of himself, the world, and us. And I would even argue that that definition for humility would work outside of this morning. Because the humble person sits there and says, I'm going to trust what God has said about himself, the world, and me over my emotions, over the voices that are bombarded me all over the place saying that I need this for value, I need this for life, I need this for my identity. Humility says it's not about me following those things, but I'm choosing to trust what God has said. I'm not going to follow my urges. Instead, I choose to embrace God's view of himself, the world, and myself. And with these definitions in hand, what we're going to see is if we operate out of pride, it leads to that insecurity. It's the chasing the broom and the malto meal and the, the, the fridge with the double doors. Uh, humility, though, leads to security because we know our identity is the one given to us. Now, I said that Saul's response to his moa, his moment of awareness there, that he, uh, he had a history, if you will, of, of showing pride and insecurity. So let's just look at three. I just want to look at three of these things. First Samuel chapter 10, verse 21 and 22. Now, again, this happens after he's gone to Samuel, after he said, your donkeys are fine, after Samuel has said, you are the, next, you are the first king, you're going to, here are your signs and wonders that you need to confirm that what I'm saying is true. This is after that. Now they gather together and they're casting lots to confirm this. And as the lots are being cast, they all come to him. And so they're like, oh, it's Saul. And Saul, the son of Kish, was selected by Lot. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. And he must have been really good at hide and seek. That's something he, because nobody can find him. So they had to pray and they inquired of the Lord. Has the man, is he even here yet? He's off hiding. He says, behold, he is hiding himself among the baggage. See, he's not embracing. He's rejecting what God has already said about him. You are the king. No, I'm not. Yes, you are the king. And he says, no, no. I'll just hang out here. I won't embrace 
what God has said of me. I will reject what God said of me. Now, maybe we'll give him a pass because he's the first king. He just doesn't know how to, to, to respond. What's the right thing? when the cat? Maybe he didn't know. Let's just move forward and see if we get a little more glimpse of, of Saul here. Saul chapter, or 1 Samuel chapter 13, 9 and 10. Now, this is an intense time for him. It really is. The, the enemy is, is closing in, and, and Samuel said, I'm going to come, and I'm going to offer the sacrifice before the battle is going to begin. And so during this time of, of pressure, Saul waited for the seven days until the appointed time that Samuel had set. Now, they, they didn't have a Garmin. They didn't have a Timex. So, so was, I'm sure it wasn't like just sitting there waiting and saying, you said you'd be here on day seven. Day seven starts at midnight. It's midnight, you're not here, where it's all falling apart. We, we, we don't know that, but we see some impatience here, don't we? Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering because the people, they were nervous, they're terrified, and so they're running away from Saul, and he sees this, and he's like, I gotta do something, I've gotta take control. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Immediately, if you read the next verse, immediately, guess who shows up? Samuel ready to offer the sacrifice. And my point being here is that Saul had both Samuel saying, I'll be there, the spokesperson of God, but he also had the Mosaic law that said only priests offer these sacrifices. And Saul was not the priest. And so he deliberately said, no. I mean, that's true. Only the priest can offer sacrifices in normal settings. But this is extreme. This is a really hard time right now. And so because of the weight, I, I need to go ahead and just ignore what God had said and do my own thing. We're seeing more and more that Saul might be a person who operates out of pride and insecurity. The funny thing is, or interesting thing, is when Saul finally, as he shows up and they have a conversation, he just says, here's the deal, um, Saul. Your son's not going to reign. Instead, God is going to go find somebody who is actually willing to embrace his ways. It's going to be a person after his own heart. One other thing here, just as we, we move quickly through, just to see that Saul has this prideful insecurity infection going on and inside of him. First Samuel 15, verse 12, the, the setting here is, God is, has essentially come along and said, uh, here are these people who have continually opposed my people, God's people. They've always done everything they could do to prevent them from walking in victory. And it, it's time to write that. And so God sends them on a mission to, to wipe out everything associated with the people. And so uh, Saul says, okay, I've, I've got it, I understand. And so he goes out, and as, they're, as the battle unfolds and they win, he goes, well, that, that ox looks really good. I know it belonged to them and we're supposed to wipe it out, but that ox, it's really, it's a good ox. We'll take that ox. And wow, look at those camels. Those are amazing camels. Uh, keep those back and keep that lamb and keep that, keep that sheep. And so he begins to compromise. God said, wipe everything out. And he says, no, 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 no. There's some good in what God has called bad. I don't really need to listen to what he has said. He kind of only meant it. And then he convinces himself that, yeah, I fully followed what, what God said. And so the Lord bumps into Samuel and says, hey, Saul's doing his own thing. He was, he was called to be the king. He was called to be the one who would, would lead my people in a way that would honor me. And he's only honoring himself. And Samuel gets up early in the morning and is rushing out to go find King Saul. So Samuel gets up early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was reported to Samuel saying, Saul came, he had a caramel, he was here, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. 
Then he turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Now, setting up a monument for yourself was actually normal in the ancient Near East for everybody else around to say, look what I've done as a king. Look what I've done as king. Look what I have done as king. It was normal practice. But what Saul was supposed to do is look what God has done to direct attention towards him. And instead, you see a pivot to direct attention towards him. What's the point of this quick trip through Saul's life? We see that he had signs of pride, right? Rejecting what God had said about himself, about the world and us. And then we see that he had massive insecurity, people pleasing, people were leaving. And that's normal when you follow the blue line versus the gold line down here. And you run into these moments of awareness. And now it's going to reveal something about, about King Saul. One we come out comparing, the other one we come out celebrating. At his Moa, he compared, which is revealing this pattern of insecurity. And, and I don't know about y'all. I, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm constantly bombarded with, with the Moas all over the place. I'm just, I just feel like they're just, they, they keep coming. And I'm not going to stand up here and, and say, I always celebrate. That would be false because there's times in my life when, I, when those heated toilet seats show up. I'm like, oh, man, that was pretty nice. And I begin to compare and so I'm not here to guilt or shame anybody. I just, it's important for us to know that it's not the comparison that's the real problem. You got to back it up a few steps. The comparison is just uh, what my dad would call an idiot light on your car dashboard. You know, like you don't have to be a, a mechanic. If you're driving, all of a sudden, boom, it lets you know your tires need to be inflated or boom, you, you need gas or bing, check the engine or bing, you need oil. You, you know, the little lights. You don't have to be mechanically gifted. Just like, that's not normal. I should go take it to somebody who knows what to do. But if you ignore that long enough, bad things happen. Uh, quick story from, from my high school world. There was uh, Vasim, who was a, a fellow tennis player of mine on the tennis team. He and his brother, they had a car, and bing, the idiot light went off that said, add oil, oil low. And this is literally what they did. They said, well, um, that's kind of annoying, and they taped a thing over it so they could not see the warning light anymore because that will fix it, right? And what do you think happened as they continued to drive the car? You know, initially nothing, but as it went on, it was devastating. The engine seized up, the car was totaled, all because they ignored the warning signs. And so it's disastrous of ignoring car warning signs, and there's actually some pretty disastrous things that happen when we ignore the warning signs of our heart. And I want to look at the impact here. I'm going to move quickly. First thing is you're going to see in Saul's life that there's strained relationships. Right away, Saul eyed David with suspicion from that day on. As soon as that, you've killed thousands, David's killed ten thousands, he compares, revealing the insecurity and the pride. From that point forward, David was viewed as an enemy, which is incredible because as you read 1 Samuel, you'll see that they were, they were linked together in a beautiful way. Until this moment, and then all of a sudden there's distance. And David, he's faithful servant to Saul, always looking to honor him. And yet there was a strain on that relationship. But not just that one, Samuel and Saul, the prophet and King Saul. As soon as he had this, his last thing there, setting the monument up to himself, they never saw each other ever again the rest of their lives. Not only that, Jonathan, which is a uh, King Saul's son, 
there was great friction and tension there because uh, Jonathan was like, I can see what's happening. The kingdom is going to David, and I'm for that. King Saul's daughter, who married David, there was tension there because Saul wanted to go and kill David, and she helped rescue him, and so now he's mad at his daughter. Not only that, all of his faithful servants are gathered, and he views them as distrust. What you see is when we ignore the warning light of comparison, what it does is it creates incredible strain on relationships. It also has another thing on our emotional health. Anger is a side effect of this as well. Then Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice, which is just crazy, coming back to his faithfulness. One spear throw at me, and I'm probably done. Like, I'm not going to come back and say, try again. But twice, this unfolds. Because David wasn't his enemy, but he viewed him that way. You just see anger going on. In um, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 33, he takes the spear and he hurls it at his son, Jonathan, trying to kill Jonathan because he's angry. You see this spear from this point forward in the book of 1 Samuel. You see it's always in Saul's hand. He's always throwing it. It's always nearby because he's angry. As a matter of fact, it gets even worse if that's possible, trying to kill one of your most loyal servants and try to kill your own son. There was a priest who helped David who had no idea this other backstory was going on. He he helped David, and out of that, Saul had him and 85 of his family killed. Changes, ignoring that warning sign. One more thing, one more impact we hear. There's just a consumption or really a waste of resources. As we read here, so Saul mustered all his army to go down to Keilah and besiege David and his men. And so he sits there and he says, I'm sending the entirety of my army, all of my resources, focusing on trying to track down and kill one person who is so loyal to me as opposed to actually reigning. Just reigning and ruling and encouraging people to trust an incredible God. He says, no, my resources have got to be focused on fixing this insecurity pride issue in me. What a waste of resources. And the point of that is living in comparison, living in insecurity, living as we reject God's view of himself and us and the world has devastating impact on relationships on your emotional health, on wasting our resources, and also a distorted view, a false narrative. Remember, everybody came out to say, you're a king, I want to meet you. And what did he say? Oh, you think I'm not good enough. He just distorted the view. There are horrible implications if we continue to be men and women who would want to walk in a place of comparison. Now again, none of this is to guilt or shame anybody. Zero, zippo, nil, nada. Because again, I'm not perfect in this. But we've got to understand there's a danger as we walk this way. And here's the beauty of the gospel. It offers us a pathway for freedom. And that's glorious. So let us just come back and and look at our, our thing. Pride, rejecting God's view of himself, the world, and us. Humility then is embracing God's view of himself, the world, and us. And it's going to seem like this is just too simple. It's going to seem like it's just too easy. It's going to seem like that's just, I don't know, like, it's just, it, because it's so easy, I just don't want anything to do with it. But, but really, how do we change from the spirit of comparison to celebration? It's humility. We're going to see this actually through David as he's being chased 
by Saul and his army. And David's exhausted, and so he and his men are holed up in a cave in the mountains. And Saul is looking for him, can't find him. He needs to go relieve himself, and he has his heated toilet seat and goes into the cave. And as he's in the cave, it's the same cave where David and all of his men are. And his men say, this is great. David, you've been anointed already as king. You've talked to Samuel. Samuel said, you are the next king. This is it. Kill him. He's the one who's chasing you. Kill him. And this is David's response. He says, so David said to the men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I would do this thing, that I would kill my Lord, being Saul, because I'm loyal to him, because he is the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to reach out with my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And you see something beautiful. David is not there rushing, but David is respecting God, even in that difficult time. He's reflecting on what God has done. In the middle of the difficult situation, he's embracing who God is and the promises God has given. He's just not demanding his timeline. And that's the key for us when we have those moas, those moments of awareness, when we only see what we don't have. Either the things or the experiences that others have, what that actually does, it does create a difficult situation for us. Maybe not that same intensity, but it does. I mean, we're like, oh, what do I do? And so I want to ask you this question. If, if humility is embracing what God has said about himself, about the world, and about us, when is the last time that you've taken space, that you've just paused to reflect on who God is? When's the last time? When's the last time you paused to say, God is holy, God is perfect, God is merciful, and yet he's just. God is loving, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-present. <laughs> he's far greater, really, than what we could ever comprehend. When's the last time we just paused and just thought about that? And then began to take that God and go, he's also relational, and he's incredibly sacrificial, and he's incredibly generous, and he's incredibly patient. And yet he's also a God who won't excuse rebellion. When's the last time we just took a little bit of time? And then when's the last time that you paused and just thought, apart from God, who am I? Who would I be? Oops. Rebellious is who we are, imperfect, self-loving, self-focused, spiritually dead, not broken, spiritually dead. We're exhausted, if we're really honest, because we're chasing all the things we think will give us life, but none of them do. We're constantly under judgment with no way of escape. I mean, just when the, that's just heavy. It's glorious to think about who he is. It's heavy thinking about who we are if we try to fix things on our own. And then it's beautiful when you think of those two things coming together. Because humility is thinking about who he is and who we are through his lens. Because the holy, perfect, just, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing God moved towards us in love in his son, Jesus Christ, who came as a baby. That's what we're, that's what we're celebrating as we're coming into this season. It's not about more gifts, like more heated toilet seats or multiple meal. It's really about we're, we're stopping and we're slowing down and pausing on the beauty of what God has done, of sending his son to come who lived a perfect life. Never a wrong thought, never a wrong word, never a wrong action. And as he lived in that perfection, he then embraced through humility God's plan for him, which was the cross to pay the price for me and for you to be restored, brought back into a saving 
wonderful, really beautiful relationship. And he went and he died a brutal death on the cross. And yet death couldn't contain him. He was raised again to show that his sacrifice was enough. And that's just, that's incredibly beautiful. When's the last time we've just thought about that? That all through that, it's whomever believes in what Jesus has done. Not who has given the most money. Not who has acted nicely. Not who has the best church attendance. It's nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with like, I understand I'm exhausted chasing these things. I can't fix my brokenness. He can. I, thank you. It's incredible. And I encourage you, if that's not been your understanding of the gospel, if that's been something you've just run far away from, you're just too busy running after malto meal and push brooms, I encourage you to, to cease from striving and just know that he is God and know that he loves you and he's in pursuit of you and he's, what he's asking is you just say thank you, that you receive the incredible gift of his son. And instantly, we become a new creation. Newness comes in. When have you stopped and, and thought about that? Instantly, he restores us. Instantly, he renews us. He lavishes love upon love. He gives gifts to us. He reclaims our purpose for life. We're designed to image him, and he moves in, and we're able to do that and live on purpose. That's incredible. He holds us securely. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's made us a new creation who is no longer insecure, chasing everything else, because he's given us an identity, my child whom I love, and I protect, and I defend. And that is incredible. And that alone is enough to leave us dumbfounded and thankful for all of our lives. And when we face these moas, these moments of awareness, if we forget that, comparison is coming. Paul talks about the beauty of the gospel and how it's a safeguard for us in Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brothers, it's interesting, he says, finally, my brothers, in chapter 3, he keeps writing. But finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble for me, just as it's no trouble for me. I love telling people about the gospel. I love it. If you can't tell, I get kind of excited about the beauty of it. It's no trouble for me to tell it to you again. I love it. And it's a safeguard for you and me. Real quick thing, and I'll wrap up here, but just about a week ago, uh, I was reminded in between services, about a week ago, two people that I know got new cars. Hey, do you want to see this car? I got this new car. I got the new truck. And they're, they're excited. And, and it's cool. I don't know about you, but it's, it's frustrating buying the car, like sitting there, and it's frustrating. But once you have it, it's new. It's exciting. It's great. And so I'm like, yeah, I want to see it. I, and so I, I move out specifically towards, towards the truck that my coworker had, had just gotten. And as I moved out there, and he's showing me all these cool things about the truck, what started stirring to me was like, man, I'd like to have that new car feeling. I, I just like that thrill of something new. I started comparing. And God was so gracious, he just stopped like, How, what do you have? I began to think about the beauty of the gospel. And it was really cool because in a moment I was able to look at this vehicle that wanted to have me all of a sudden have comparison. Instead, I was able to celebrate alongside of them. I was able to walk around. Look at the rims. They're black. These are so cool. It's got leather on the inside. That's, that's awesome. And it was genuine. It was overflowing. And what do you think that did for our relationship, our friendship? It grew it in a healthy way. It's truly beautiful. The gospel frees us. It frees us from comparison. So a couple practical things. Just, none of these are going to be earth-shattering to you, but I just want just 
A few things to help remind us so we don't get caught up in the season of Moas all over the place. Talk to God often. Just It reminds you it's not all about you. He's there too. Share with him your worries, your struggles, your excitements, your joys. Just acknowledge that he is near. It's really a beautiful thing and will change your life. When you drive, turn the radio off. Have a conversation with him. When you're waiting in line at HEB, have a conversation with him. Perhaps not out loud because people might think something's weird, but talk with him. Engage with him often. Number two there is give thanks daily. Wake up and like begin to just praise him. Praise him for the gospel, but then you can look and say, look at this. I have 10 of these that are moving and working. God, thank you. We have legs that are, right now are, are, are working. I can breathe without assistance. Wow, there's a family that loves me. Begin to give thanks over all the things that he has given. And then grow in what he says. Spend some time in God's word getting to know. We can't embrace what he has said about himself, the world, and us if we don't know it. And so spend some time reading God's word and begin to share with others. Share, I was reading this. Isn't this cool? He says this about himself. All right, man, he says this. I'm kind of confused. Can you help me? Begin to have these moments where we're willing to share authentically and even share things like, man, I got to let you know I had a coworker who showed me this thing in his, his new car and it was really a struggle for me. But can I tell you what God did? Begin to have these relationships, these friendships that we can engage in that deep level. Share with others. And then recognize Moas for what they are. They're simply opportunities to have a little check. Are we operating from a secure, humble place or an insecure, prideful place? So wrapping up here with a review. We talked about that comparison. It simply review, reveals really our hearts. The impact of it is, man, strained relationships. Our emotional health suffers waste of resources, distorts the narratives, and there's freedom. Because it's going to be a Moa-filled Christmas. And I would love for that to re- reveal in us humble and secure hearts. And here's the deal. If it doesn't, if the check engine light of our heart is illuminated as we begin to compare, I just encourage you to think of King Saul because he was somebody who was an incredibly gifted leader who had incredible promises from God, just as you and I have. Yet he lived a miserable life because of comparison. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. Um, You are a good, good God, and you give good, good gifts. The gospel, Lord, is is kind of ridiculous in many ways because it seems too good to be true. We have to earn everything in life. That's what we feel like, and yet you come and you give the most beautiful, life-changing thing that does change us dramatically. And so, Father, I pray that this season that we would spend some time to pause and reflect on that and that we would celebrate that. And Father, if we're here and we're far from you, we've never trusted you before, Lord, I pray that you would work in a way that is understandable and that you would quicken our hearts just to say, yes, thank you. Father, I thank you that you do give us something amazing to ponder and reflect on not just during the Christmas season, but throughout the entirety of our lives. Father, we absolutely love you.